Hello friends, Stephen here. We've been doing Tent Theology now for over a year and it has been a wonderful ride. We plan to keep going with this, so don't you worry. But I did think it would be good to take the time to mention something I've never really talked about on the podcast before, and that is our Patreon account. If you go to www.patreon.com forward slash Tent Theology, you will see three different levels that you can give at. Every level gets the same goodies, which is extra material, courses, teaching, and other interviews. We try and put something up every week so that you get the Tent Theology podcast as well as the Patreon bonus episodes. Tent Theology is a labor of love. It costs some money to make, not only our time, but also to host the podcast on various websites and platforms. By giving to Tent Theology, you allow us to keep making this thing. We are so thankful for the patrons that we already have. And if you are someone who has benefited from Tent Theology or something that we've made in the past, do consider becoming a patron for as little as $5 or £5 a month. We're poised to be releasing our study of the Book of Acts on the Patreon account. Here on the podcast, we're going to release the first four episodes looking at the beginning of the Book of Acts. But then over on the Patreon account, you will get a line-by-line political theology reading all the way through to the end of the book. If you've been thinking about supporting Tent Theology, this is the best time to jump on board. Thank you for your support. Now on with the show. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome back, friends, to Tent Theology, and I'm so happy to welcome back Andrea Lipke and Virginia Lindsay, who are two friends talking me through and talking each other through the whole field of abortion, adoption, Down syndrome, raising a Down syndrome child, and the politics of it, the personal feelings around it, and also the religious and philosophical ideas. So I can't really think of two better people to help me talk through this. And and listeners to last week will know that it all arose really because Virginia was a friend of mine who has a Down syndrome son. And I had read an article uh, about Down syndrome and I immediately thought, I want to ask, uh, see what Virginia thinks about this. And she had been listening to my podcast about violence and Christians and violence. And she was going to ask me a question about abortion and violence. And so our emails crossed and what emerged was this conversation between Virginia and I, and then we uh, enlisted Andrea Lipke into this because Andrea also has a a story, a connection to these things and this subject, a personal connection, and as she's put deep thought into it as well. And you can hear their stories in the previous week's episode. But this week, we are going to talk more about the the ideas around it, the, the, the statistics, the the ins and outs of abortion and the the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement and just what do followers of Jesus, how do we orient ourselves in this world where the pro-life movement just doesn't seem to offer what we as followers of Jesus think actually is pro-life and we so easily see the the politicized pro-life movements as not actually offering a whole lot in the way of real pro-life and we don't see the radical pro-choice type movement either reflecting our opinions when it comes to human life and the uh, what's important as followers of Jesus and how we use violence to solve our problems. It is just frankly a confusing mess and I myself I've been married for uh, for over 20 years and uh, we are without children uh, not by choice and uh, I won't probably go into all the details because all of the story is not just mine to tell. It's also my wife's and she hasn't here right now. But adoption clearly looms large on our uh, imaginations. Uh, The issue of of what to do if children are so important to the marriage is the Christian story of marriage is that children are these, you know, that's the meaning for marriage. So then what do you do when you're married and you don't have children? 
So sometimes our Christianity tells us a story about ourselves that doesn't actually reflect the life that we're living. And also in my experience, I found that uh, the emotions that are meant to attach to children or not to having children don't always line up either. We live in a world which tells you that if you don't have children, you're really sad about it. And that I haven't found that to always be true in my experience. While I recognize that some people, that is their deepest source of sadness, it's not mine. Uh, but I would like to have children. <laughs> and adoption is something we're told, aren't we, that Christians are told that you must adopt or you should adopt or it should be a great privilege to do it. And I'm sure that's true. And yet, I have not adopted anyone. I have not gone out of my way to adopt children. Andrea has. And uh, so this is part of the story that I'm so interested to talk with you both about these things. Uh, I just wanted to mention that I have a stake in this conversation as well. So Virginia, let's start with you. You, you, you asked me the thing that started this all was your question about violence. T talk to us a bit. How do you define violence? How do we all define violence? Maybe we should start there. What are you thinking? Well, I, I define violence. I wanted to say physical, physical restraint or physical force. But of course, you can commit violence with your language and your words as well. I think it's something to do. I would have to say it have to be something to do with uh, uh, the use of force and domination to prevent another being from doing what it wants to do. What about you, Andrea? I the use of force and domination for doing something the other doesn't want to do. I, I agree with that. And I think that that includes a kind of psychological, emotional, spiritual aspect too. Cause I do think that everything we do in the physical does have some resonance in those other realms. I think it's one, it, you can't, dominate physically without also dominating in some sense in those other in those other ways but i i also think that so much violence is done without a physical manifestation that there's ideological um violence that there's psychic violence so i i think i can i can go with what steven said with that addition mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, when I when I wrote in to Stephen initially about this question of abortion, and I was basically challenging him, I was like, well, what women are you going to have on the show talking about this? <laughs> because you have to address it if you're going to be talking about nonviolence. Listening to this podcast has really changed the way I think about violence a lot. I really liked what Chris Marchand was saying the other day about the, the two examples he gave about the guy that he had to physically restrain who was attacking the nurses. He didn't feel a violence in that regard, but he did feel a violence when he told his friend that his idea was stupid. That's right. And I, I thought that was a really nice example. And it kind of thinking of, and when I was thinking about abortion, I was thinking about it in these terms of domination. And so how, how, how are we dominating and committing violence towards unborn children, but also women, you know, that's not talked about um, enough, the two together. So yeah, I, I'm wondering this idea of like being and non-being, is there ever a time where violence can be performed without, it's basically taking away someone's being, isn't it? In a way, I don't know, would you disagree with that Stephen? Or I'm still figuring it out. But. Well, we are figuring it out. I, and also then there is the added question of even if we agree that abortion is violent and taking a life, right? is it still wrong? I mean, that's the other thing is like, is all violence wrong? Is all taking life wrong? Even if we agree that it's taking a life, is it maybe still warranted? Uh, and then there's the added thing of exactly what Andrea brought up before, that violence can be social psychic, spiritual, linguistic, philosophical, like, is so many forms where human lives are crushed and, and marginalized. And, uh, and it's easy to imagine a, a mother being suffering violence by being forced to have a baby. 
as well as the baby suffering violence when it's aborted. Like right. those, both those things can be true. And also taking in mind the, I was thinking about this idea of kenosis and I, and I'm, I love everything that you've been saying about kenosis. And so kenosis to me almost seems the opposite of violence. So yes. if we, if we think about abortion um, and let's think about all parties, not just, yeah. you know, one, uh, yeah. you know, the unborn child, the mother, also the family, because many women who are having an abort abortions, according to research, are, have existing families. And a lot of times they're having abortions to make space for their other children that they don't feel they can right. take care of um, yeah. financially or emotionally or time, ma mainly financially. So much of this uh, subject is tied to economics. And so if we are gonna have a conversation about it, you have to talk about the whole thing. And this is the problem with the pro-life movement to me is that it doesn't address those things at all. You know, if you don't want someone to have an abortion in the first place, making it illegal doesn't necessarily address that according to research. Let's let's make it where let's think about if we're we're if we're to renew the Christian Im imagination about this conversation, mm -hmm. let's think of ways that take care of women, take care of families, take care of people in poverty that this is becomes a non-issue. There's not a reason mm -hmm. to need an abortion. So I think that's the way it should be tackled. It's really interesting that you mentioned the statistics about how the majority of women who have abortions already have children. Because I remember being in the recovery room of the doctor's office after getting my abortion. And I was really relieved that it was over, <laughs> little did I know. But also amazed at how many women were there in the room having just had this procedure. And I spoke to a woman who was, she couldn't have been my mom's age, but she was in her thirties. And she was a, a married woman with children. And I was like, kind of stunned that it wasn't just unmarried teens like myself who had abortions, but that it was actually this kind of soccer mom who also had an abortion. And it sounds terrible. And again, you know, recognize I, I, this is 19 year old me. I, it, it comforted me that I wasn't some anomaly in this world, just floating around in my evil misery, but that this was something that was common to women of all kinds. It, I can't call it a sisterhood because that's, that's it. But I remember because my experience of older women was that surely they would reject me or surely like my mother, they would have no truck with what I had just done. I remember that was very stunning to me that it wasn't just unmarried women who did this, but that it was something that people did who were in more solid situations than myself. Yeah. And, and a lot of times are, you know, good loving parents that they're, they're just trying to take care of the kids that they have and can't, don't feel they can do that well if they have mm -hmm. another child. That kind of make, makes me think of another question uh, sort of a general question and then a specific question for you, Andrea. But so does it always take dehumanization to perform an act of violence against another human? Do we do this by calling unborn children fetuses? Do we do this by vilifying women seeking or who've had abortions? And, you know, that's kind of a general question we can all ask ourselves. But Andrea, I'm thinking of you, you know, I know you've been through a lot of therapy and are keenly aware of how the body keeps the score. You are also a follower of the Christian mystic tradition, which is very in tune with the coagulation of the spiritual and the physical. And after hearing your story, can you tell us any ways how or what your body knows about your experiences? And I don't mean just the negative, but the positive as well. And also have you, 
in the, the dehumanization, you know, did you feel like you had to dehumanize your child to do that abortion? And do you, have, do you ever feel like you've been dehumanized by other people? And talk about that. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a mouthful. And I will, I will do my best to answer those in no particular order. I have to go back in time because I, I would say, and this is not as an excuse, but something that's really interesting to me at this point, I'm 54 years old. I'm past my childbearing years by far. And I'm the much older mother of young children. And, and as my daughter gets older, I want to be able to share all of this with her. So and I've never come out in public to talk about this, but when I was five years old, I was raped. And I can't help but think that there's a way that having been so violated at such a young age deeply imprinted me with this broken view on sexuality, a broken sense of my body and of my value. And that kind of matched with a sense of not having been terribly loved or cherished by my father, who was an alcoholic and busy with building his own empire, kind of had me early sexualized and seeking, you know, love in all the wrong places or seeking value or and so I do think that a lot of my kind of promiscuity was hinged by that early sad fact. And I do, th I actually think that before I dehumanized my pregnancy, I, I would say that I dehumanized my sexual partners. And I think in a sense that kind of having this broken, somewhat instrumentalized view on sex as not only giving me pleasure, but maybe filling me in ways that I should have been filled otherwise in terms of value and having been, you know, being cherished. I, as much as being used by my partners, I used them. So if I... And, and also being broken off from my own body from not only the rape, but also kind of being promiscuous. How is it that I could hum humanize something that was the product of something that wasn't quite human or, and certainly not human in the full, you know, as I come to understand humanity, and I'm a humanist, I'm, I'm a Christian humanist, I'm not a secular humanist, but I'm very much a humanist. And I think that in our fullest humanity, we are in, made in the image of God and that being having God indwelling us, and I believe that God indwells everybody. I don't think it's just believers. I think we are, we are God breathed and we are um, in the image of God that not going into relationship with people and not recognizing that and not cherishing it that in them and not realizing it or cherishing it in oneself, it becomes easy to dehumanize the other, if that makes sense. So I would say that even before I got pregnant, I was engaged in dehumanizing the other, even if it looked just like getting laid at the end of a night after a fun party. Um, so did I dehumanize my baby? Absolutely, it, it wasn't quite human. And that in part was because I could, kind of couldn't conceive of it as a human, even though I had conceived it. I also would say that it's pretty easy to dehumanize fetuses when even in pregnancy literature, when you're you know, what to expect when you're expecting. It's like, oh, it's the size of a lima bean. It's a ping pong. It's a, it's a grapefruit. Like the comparisons are such that they, that they're like inanimate objects rather than humans. 
And of course, the few people that I confided in at school were saying, oh, you know, this happened to a friend of mine and they just went to the clinic and, you know, we got them a coloring book afterwards and a Slurpee and they just rested and they were fine. You know, you'll be fine. This kind of, um, since I wasn't sharing it with people who I felt would judge me, like my mom and brother, I didn't really think about it in terms, I, I didn't dare go down that route um, of thinking of this being, but I, at the same time, I knew, I knew it was. And I lived in that impossible space for like four or five weeks of knowing what was happening inside of me and feeling the physical, I was morning sick. I, those things that I loved before, I couldn't, I couldn't be near because it would make me throw up. I felt my body change. Everybody was saying, you look so good. Like what's going on here? And it was very hard to kind of live with this, uh, this very split reality of being a 19 year old finishing your freshman year, ooh, summertime, and knowing that you're actually going to be giving birth to death, if that makes sense. Do you ever feel like anyone dehumanized you kind of post the abortion for having, for having it? I mean, again, I, ran away from anybody who would do that. I longed for my mother to talk to me about the psychological damage it had done for me. But every anytime I would try to bring it up on that level, she would just completely go to the spiritual. And I felt like I felt unseen. That just wasn't what I needed. I needed to be walked alongside and talk to and listen to rather than preached at. And, and she was much more nuanced than that. But I think she couldn't go there in herself at any point in her life. So why, why would she be able to do that with me on such a hot button topic that brought up so much for herself? Interestingly, this is so interesting. And I don't know, there was some great mystery to my mother that never was revealed. She, she passed away about five years ago. And my father passed away about two and a half years ago. There was some deep wounding in her that she was never able to discuss to anybody. So the amazing thing, I recently discovered something that I had never known before when I was filling out some paperwork for my British mm. passport. And I was researching on ancestry.com because I have to have the, the, the marriage dates of my grandparents on both sides, my American grandparents and my Swedish grandparents. And I noticed that my grandparents were married five months before my mother was born. This is something I had never known before, nor had my brother. And I wonder if that had been a factor in my mother's kind of psychological equation vis-a-vis -vis this I'm not sure but it it's it's hard to piece the distant past posthumously but I I can't help but feel like there there was a generational wounding there as well I also believe that that happens so have I been have I felt dehumanized I don't think I have when it comes to this issue and at this point honestly I don't know that anyone could dehumanize me on this because it's my experience and I feel like it's been worked through my every fiber and that actually Stephen this being here and speaking to you about it is really a kind of healing for me Virginia, can I ask you a question? So knowing you as I do and knowing that you are an incredibly visual person, you know, 
for those of you who don't know Virginia, she's an incredible artist and a wizard at making everything around her beautiful. I'm wondering, do you think there's any way that the fact that we can see sonograms that, that the fetus has been imaged plays a role in your feeling that abortion could not ever be possible for you? Mm -hmm. That you see the humanity and the, the shape and form? I think it definitely helps. I think, I think it goes beyond that for me. I think um, with all my pregnancies, I mean, we were talking about before, even in, in the last episode, even when I thought I might be pregnant once and I, you know, like the first week, I mean, I wasn't pregnant, but it, it still felt like it could be human to me and I wanted to take care of it. I no, even with my miscarriage too, it's it's sort of weird. And and Stephen, you may have a lot to say about this as well. Some of your experiences. Uh, it's this funny feeling. I always say it's like a tiny soul. Like I don't know anything. I don't know if it was fully human. I don't know. I lost that child at mm -hmm. ten weeks, which is really early days. But you wonder like was that is that I don't know like it it's strange even and all the times that I've been pregnant I've felt without having a visual a real sense of this is a who is this person that's always the question who is this person and you really don't know who they are until they're born and you're like oh there you are you know uh, so I've been listening about Andrea talking about being disconnected, like well before we got to the point where she's a 19 year old yeah. who needed to have an abortion already the dehumanization and disconnect from relationship and was already well in place. I mean, generationally in place. And, and then I'm just noticing Virginia's talking about humanity and personhood. And it did remind me of, this this man I uh, named Stanley Hauvas, who uh, who I really value as a as a Christian thinker, and he wrote this famous essay once, and and the essay, the essay's title basically says it all, which he's talking about his uncle Charlie who was in a coma, and the question was about is Uncle Charlie should we pull the plug? And uh, Hauvas's essay was, I don't know if my uncle Charlie is a human, but I know he's my uncle Charlie. Hmm. and he's and the rest of the essay was about trying to say well there's a difference between a, a human being a human life is one thing but the personhood comes from connection and relationship and that uncle charlie comes with connections and responsibilities and, and uh, uncle charlie is not just some unit in a machine right he's he's in a a web of interconnection and relationships and i think that this is what Havas is trying to get us to think about. He says, stop trying to think about like human life or is this a human or not? Start trying to think, how is this event connected to all the other events that make up our existence? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm just looking at this Paul Tillich quote, life remains ambiguous as long as there is life. The question implied in the ambiguities of life derives to a new question, namely that of a direction in which life moves. This is the question of history, systematically speaking, history characterized as it is by its direction toward the future is the dynamic quality of life. Therefore, the riddle of history is part of the problem of life. And I think that's that also, too, it speaks to why like stories are so important. You know, these you why this conversation of pro-life versus pro-choice is oversimplified and broken, you know the yeah. importance of really seeing each other really listening to each other really thinking about this in a in larger terms than is been the traditional way can, can i can i ask you both a question but perhaps specifically andrea i mean cards on the table i i do i don't i do think abortion is is not a valid option for followers of jesus right like i, I do think that that ultimately taking a, a, a human life to solve a human problem isn't isn't actually the way of 
of Jesus. So how do we say that? How do I say that? Or how do I hold myself in this complicated story that Virginia just talked about without then also being a source of judgment and dehumanization and right? Like, how do you do that, Andrea? How do you hold some of those tensions together where, where one can actually think, no, I, I do actually have an opinion about abortion, but I also don't think that it's just so easy as blanket judgment on everyone who had one. Well, I, as a follower of Christ, would not get an abortion. I mean, it's a moot point for me now, right. but I mean, I, I essentially lost my first marriage over the yeah. fact that I yeah. couldn't say that I would have an abortion definitively. I mean, honestly, if, if the situation had come about that I did bear a child with Downs, would I have considered abortion? I mean, I, I kind of knew that I could never have another abortion, that I, I just couldn't. It is, it is a tension for sure. You know, people have come to me, but never has a, another believer come to me and said, I'm pregnant and I'm considering abortion. They've all been friends who have been non-believers. And while I could talk to them about parenting, about adoption, about all of those things, ultimately I couldn't, I could not bring myself to say, do not get a, an abortion. It's the wrong thing to do. I can't, I can't say that. It's, it's a, even though life wants life, like from a purely biological and evolutionary standpoint, life wants life, but I'm not somebody who can parse, parse that for someone else. If my daughter, God forbid, got pregnant, in the same situation. This is something my husband and I talk about all the time. What would we do? What would we say? If she were 19, she would have to make her own decision because she's an adult. She's hmm. a major. I would talk to her about what my experiences are. And as soon as it's appropriate, I will talk to her. Everything on the table, unlike my mother, She'll, she'll be like, please stop telling me about yourself. You've told me too much. Enough with the TMI, mom. I don't have an answer for that, Stephen. I don't. Right, right. That's, that's why it's so, I can't speak with this moral authority of abortion is wrong. I can say that, that I would never be able to do it again, that it would grieve me greatly if my daughter had one, mm -hmm. but the second she did, if she did, I would be walking with her, talking to her, getting her into counseling, letting her process, having her process it. Now, I have something to say about this too. Just, I've thought about this question because, you know, I, my situation, having a son with Down syndrome that most people choose to abort, you know, what, what would I say? And I think for me, I wrote this down the other day, I said, because um, I do think, you know, having a child with Down syndrome or any sort of otherness you put yourself next to is so important. It's such a great opportunity to learn and grow and expand as a person. And it, it's, transformative and I could talk about this all day I won't do that right now but could I tell somebody else not to abort with a child with Down syndrome I think I could share my story and encourage it. and I just wrote down I said we can expand our imagination and understanding of the world the more we allow ourselves to experience something other we can't demand someone else do that but we can show them it's possible when we do it ourselves that's how we change a culture. Culture is more effective than laws. It's the witness. It's really the witness. And the more familiar people become with something because they're seeing it, because you're living it, because enough of us are doing it and, and projecting it and showing the other side of things, then 
it is harder to dehumanize something that is familiar than it is something that's unfamiliar. And so I feel like I can't demand that from someone, but I can show them what it's like and expand their imagination by doing it myself. What were you going to say, Andrea? Well, I, you know, I am on the board of a really wonderful arts publication called Image. And the kind of tagline for Image is art, faith, mystery. But I, I find that kind of the mystery is what comes to the fore more and more. The older I get and the deeper I get into my faith is that there, there is such mystery and yes, there is morality. Absolutely. I don't, I, I, I feel like I've opened myself up to get critiqued from so every side that there is. And okay. I'm accepting of that, but I do feel like I have experienced so much grace and healing and through my wounds there has been not only healing, well, through my wounds, through, through Christ's wounds, I have been healed, but through my wounds, other people have been healed. And I think that's kind of how it works. So I would say that, yes, like, I don't want there to be abortion. I don't think it's the role of government to play that, play mm -hmm. the police, a moral police. I, I don't believe that actually. Um, and I also think that every story is very, very different. What leads people up to the point of getting abortion? I know that mm -hmm. there, there have been studies that show that women who have been molested or raped or abused early in life have a higher rate of abortion later in life. Um, also right. promiscuity without a yeah. doubt. That daughters of alcoholics, as I yeah. am, also tend to have a higher rate of abortion. Um, you know, not not as an excuse for the fact that I got knocked up and had an abortion, but as I kind of unpack my past and the mysterious circumstances that led me to that point and led me out of that point, it, it seems to play a role. And that kind of, you know, if, if sin is brokenness of relationship between me and God, me and others and, and me and myself, then I would say that abortion is, plays a pretty heavy role in that brokenness, if sin is a brokenness of relationship, and I prefer the term broken, brokenness rather than sin, if it's a broken relationship between you and God, between you and others, and you and yourself, then abortion is really a kind of trifecta there. But that said, I, I feel like I haven't reached full healing in all of those things. Certainly not. That's, that's, I don't think that's possible in mm. this life, mm -hmm. but I've really gotten so much clarity and so much healing in, in a kind of way that swallows up the event, you know, like the joy of, of redemption and healing right. has swallowed up and changed the, my view on that tremendously so and and i feel like my role as somebody who has this experience is to walk alongside empathetically with those who are either in the same situation or have come out the other end and not to be somebody on the ramparts yeah. protesting it's it's a kind of quieter um more lived in experiential mm -hmm. way I mean, when I, so when I grew up, I grew up in a quite a conservative evangelical culture. I, I just know that the attitude that we all had about abortion was that it was, it was kind of like a, how do I say this? We were so individualistic that we so overly individualized the choice that anybody who chooses to have an abortion is as if they're like this 
fully fledged adult with full moral capacity who's making a like they're looking this full in the eye and going i'm gonna choose evil because i'm selfish and it's just we kind of assume that there's this person who's just like completely knows exactly what they're doing and they're choosing the wrong thing because they don't want to mess up their lives and but then when you realize what you just said andrew like that actually (laughs) sin is not this sort of willful intelligent decision about a thing it's it's just one broken relationship after another and then if you start to think about how many things went wrong before somebody has to have an abortion absolutely how many things that's that's the real conversation that needs to be happening i think for anyone who's interested in preventing abortion or who's quote pro-life is what what do we do to to give kenosis to women who find themselves in these situations it's always laid on the woman it's all her fault she's vilified like how much of this like what do the men need to be doing to not be dominating women not to be being violent towards women that's how this happens in the first place so nobody's talking about that you know that's got to be paid more attention to and here's, I mean, here's where we're kind of scratching around this reimagination for, for followers of the way of Jesus who are totally aware that the voting every four years for some horrible politician who just says the right words about abortion and then doesn't do anything about it anyway. Like, we know that that doesn't work, but we don't know what else to do. And I think part of what to do is to to start working on this thing, this, this reconnections yes. and these reforming ways of life that are actually healthy and that make abortion less of a valid option in the first place right yeah and one of those i mean you know there's a number of things and there is some good research on this there needs to be more um there's a great uh, dr foster green she just did one study called the turnaway study it was a 10-year study about Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Diana Foster, Diana Green Foster, I'm sorry, um, the turnaway study. So she followed, I think, a thousand women for 10 years or whatever, and, and was looking at the long-term effects and the short-term effects, you know, of the women mentally, emotionally, the children that they already had or were going to have later, their health and well-being, you know, reasons why they were having an abortion, the ones who didn't want to have one, I mean, the ones who did want to have one, but were turned away, what were the ramifications there? These are the kinds of things that there is real research for and needs to be more done. But like, I don't know why the people who are talking, you know, these politicians who are really talking about all this pro-life stuff, why are they not investing in this research? This is, these are the, this is the pro-choice group that actually does. Let's really look at this in a way. What are the reasons women are having an abortion? So as Christians, how do we love women? How do we take care of women? How do we make space for women before they get into a situation like this? And also when they do, they're vulnerable, you know? And I'm not hearing questions of like, how do we love our neighbor in this regard? And we can do real, put our money where our mouth is and do real research and really read the research without a preconceived judgment about what the, what it should be. And like, let's just take care of each other, you know? I think, I think the problem is that people in the pro-life persuasion are terrified that to talk the nuance because they're afraid that nuance means that the black and white doesn't, you know, any kind of mention that this is gray is a a moral affront. And people on the left who are pro-choice don't want to take on the fact that it's complex and that it does have an impact. Whether I, I have friends who had an abortion and it, there was, seemingly no impact but they have other things depression or fibromyalgia or like god knows what i mean i i do think that traumatic experiences and it is it is whether it's felt as traumatic or not it is 
life wants mm-hmm. life and, and to take away life is a trauma mm-hmm. on many levels. And whether you feel it or not, it's there somewhere. And I think yeah. to address that is threatening to the pro-choice persuasion because then it's going to make it seem like you want to take away the right to make your own decisions. And I, you know, so both sides don't want to get into the weeds. They don't want to get into real lived experiences. Yeah. I love Rachel Held Evans quote when she said that the pro-choice movement sees, they focus on the woman and not the child and the pro-life movement focuses on the the unborn child and not the woman and obviously (laughs) there needs to be more on both sides I would also say the pro-life movement part of the problem is that it you know it focuses on the unborn child but once the child is born they don't I mean so most abortions are are happening because of socioeconomic reasons and typically that the GOP or whatever in the states that is pro-life, whatever, politically, mm-hmm. want to do nothing to address child poverty. They're taking money away. Nothing to maternal leave from work. I mean, just there's so many things over and over again that you could talk about. So, well, so I was wondering how if there's any connection between your sense of wanting to protect life and the fact that your father killed himself. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I actually don't think so. If anything, I would say, oh, so for, so my father killed himself when I was, uh, I think I was 11 years old. If anything is when it relates to this kind of story about abortion or non-abortion you know with my child with down syndrome I had a husband who was I I don't think I should say is anymore I feel he's changed a lot and that's another story too um that's really wonderful but um more in danger because of his depression and feeling like he wasn't able to handle a child with down syndrome just emotionally more danger of him harming himself if we were to have our son and that was a real, a real question for him. And so I think having had a dad who did kill himself, I, you would think that be more on guard for him. I don't think the life thing has anything to do with my dad killing himself. Well, one thing my dad did instill in me was a huge sense of social justice and, and value, valuing all human beings. That was something he lived. And I really believe that to my very core. So I love that. I love that too. Virginia, you both, well, you talked about your father and your mother instilling things. Uh, Andrea, you are a mother of two children. Actually, you're both mothers of little girls who are roughly the same age, I think. Well, actually, there are our, our Virginia's daughter and my son are the same age. Although Virginia's daughter and my daughter are best friends. Yeah, they're good friends. Gotcha. Can I ask you, like, what we've been talking about creating new cultures or doing more than just angrily protesting and voting for things. But what kind of stuff are you doing with your sons and daughters now? And what would you want the wider fellowship of believers to be doing what kinds of cultures are you helping to create and would you, and, and how, how can we help? <laughs> I guess is the question I'm asking. If I, can I start Virginia? Sure. So I, I think that our daughters are massively fortunate in that they have fathers who are loving them to the core. Yeah. And there really is something I mean, a mother's love is critical, but a father's love in making a woman feel valued and valuable is really important. And that's something I don't feel like I had. My dad loved me and we came to really kind of a great place before he passed away. But 
I was looking for that love everywhere. And I think in part, that's why I ended up getting pregnant. As I said before, I think to enter adolescence and the age of, of being sexual, already feeling valued and whole and loved, not only by your heavenly father, but by your, by your father. I still have a hard time imagining God the father as this loving presence because I didn't have a father like that. So I think by parenting warmly mm. and honestly, that goes a long way in setting, setting a kind of seedbed where good things can grow in a spiritual way. I'd add something to that just on that note. I mean, I physically didn't have a father after I was, you know, 11 years old. And there's a lot of people out there without fathers. And I, I do think fathers and mothers are, are important. And obviously you want everyone to have everything that they can have. But I really, really, really felt the love of the father, even though I didn't have one physically. I remember when my dad passed away, my mom, and I always thank her for this, immediately claimed the verse over us, like God is a father to the fatherless. And I felt that in a really tangible way growing up. I don't, it's tangible, even though it's intangible, you know, you can't, you can't quite explain it, but it's very real. I would encourage that even though some people do have fathers that hurt them or don't have fathers, that that doesn't mean they have to miss this thing. I agree with that. I wonder, I, this, this kind of conversation, first of all, has, has no end. So we're not going to have a clean ending to this. But I wonder as we come in for a landing for this particular conversation, this will have raised, we've just talked about so many important things. And uh, I, I didn't ask you this ahead of time, but where would listeners go? What, are there any places or, or sources, resources that either of you can suggest or recommend? So Virginia, take it away. Uh, well, as far as the whole sort of Down syndrome idea goes, there's a really good documentary called A World Without Down Syndrome that's actually pretty enjoyable to watch. It was made by a British comedian. Yeah, Sally Phillips. Fans of the British comedy Miranda will recognize. Um, she did a really good documentary about the whole kind of prenatal testing situation and the culture surrounding it and the ideas of where this could take you know, potential eugenics in the future. So I'd really recommend that documentary. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of studies. I think the Turnaway study is a great one to look at that challenged a lot of my ideas about what I, you know, assumed. Assuming is never good anyway. So there's, there's a lot of good hard scientific research out there that, uh, that is available. If you send me some links, I'll put them up in the notes to the show. I think when it comes to this, we're so far be behind on even remotely having any kind of healthy conversation about this culturally. I feel like it's important right. to start with better questions and I actually have a long list. <laughs> of course you do. So I'm just going to spout off a few, a couple of them we've already gone on to, but this, this show particularly is this idea of nonviolence and thinking of making space for people too. So we talked about the dehumanization. So listeners, here are some questions to ponder uh, as you think about this more deeply. If nonviolence is characterized by the opposite of domination, how can we practice this towards women, unborn children, and families who are affected by the decision to abort or not to abort? On this note, is terminating a pregnancy a form of domination? Is it the opposite of kenosis, which is laying down one's will to make gentle space for others' wills? Is telling a woman she cannot have a desired abortion a form of domination, domination or the opposite of kenosis? 
how do policymakers practice kenosis for women with unwanted pregnancies and or children born into vulnerable situations and also unborn children? How do policies provide kenosis for all these groups at once? That's a really hard question, but you gotta think about it if you're gonna take a political stance. How do women practice kenosis for unwanted pregnancies? How can society empower her to do so with love and not domination? I think, mm -hmm. you know, I had another question too, like how do we practice nonviolence towards unborn children? We ask this a lot in a Christian political context, but I'd like to hear more of how do we practice nonviolence mm -hmm. to women? particularly those in vulnerable situations. If violence is a form of domination, how do we give nonviolence or kenosis to women who feel they need to use violence as a way of escape or desperation? What are spaces we can give her so resorting to violence isn't a resort that she feels she needs to take? Also, how can we as Christians promote a culture where men do not dominate women and leave them in situations where they are bearing the burdens of their decisions as well? How do we practice mutual submission in the context of politics, particularly when it comes to caring for poor families, because this is connected to abortion big time, single mothers, children who need extra resources, et cetera. As a society, how can we lift up the vulnerable, particularly in this context of why most women get abortions? So violence becomes less of a concern by default. And I think too, in the Down syndrome conversation, and I will say it is extremely important. People with disabilities have infrastructure surrounding them, not just in their family home, but with the government and with the services that are provided with education, transportation, you know, all these things. I could not do it is hard to raise a child with a disability. It really, it's hard to raise a child. <laughs> it really does take a village. It really does. And if we mm. are, if we are thinking about, if we don't want children with disabilities to be aborted, well, our focus should be on how can mm. we support people to have a child with a disability? How can we support an adult with yeah. a disability? Right. These are the questions to be asking, not just, yeah. should we make it illegal or not? No, how do we love? How do we create an infrastructure where humans can flourish? You want to solve the abortion issue? Solve the human flourishing issue. Can I just say one last thing? If it takes a village to if it takes a village to raise our children, I want Virginia Lindsay to be our mayor. <laughs> and I have I have an even longer list of questions, which I won't go into. Maybe you could post them on the website. But I just think we've got to think about this bigger. I think at the very first step, Virginia, you just you two need to start your own podcast <laughs> or somewhere to hold all these really amazing things. Uh, Andrea, Virginia, thank you so much for coming. I'm honored that you're here. Thank you for having us, Steve. So glad to have this conversation. It's been a treat. Thanks for making space. Oh, and I, I hope you have more women come on and talk about these things because yeah. even even the researchers are saying they can't even really talk about this in a political way enough because the stories aren't being told. People are being silent about this. So we have to talk more. Exactly. And if we can't do it amongst Jesus followers, then you can't do it anywhere. You're in trouble. So. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. Well, bless you both. And uh, please do uh, uh, check the website or check the notes on this show for any links that Virginia is going to send for anything that we need more information about. But until then, I will see you and uh, talk to you later. Shalom. Bye. Bye. <laughs> to further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone. There's this famous picture painting, I think it's Van Eyck, or is it Rembrandt, of Thomas sticking his finger mm -hmm. hesitantly into the side of Christ. Yeah. And it strikes me that this is both the Christ, an opportunity for the, for the Christ in us to offer our woundings, but also 
for the hesitant Thomases of us to stick our finger, to yeah. dare to stick our finger in it. Yeah. And, and to create a space. It was so, it's so interesting because I was thinking about this conversation before. Obviously, I was thinking about it just now. I was going for a walk. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be like a man that just mansplains abortion all the time. And then I thought, wait a second. I actually have never been in a room when anybody talks about it, let alone men or women. Like, it, yeah. nobody talks about it. And I just thought, actually, I'm not going to pretend like I live in this world where men are always talking about abortion. I live in a world in which nobody talks about it. Well, you know, and it's funny, you'd think as women, we would talk about it more. And and obviously, there's a way that I find that women do talk about it more, right, right. but usually on the level of a political level rather than a personal level. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to start out by saying, from my viewpoint and for what I offer the conversation, it's not theological and it's not political. It's really experiential and personal. And so forgive my idiocy and ignorance because it's vast, but I can tell you my own story and the, the lead up fallout and some very, very, very beautiful things. God breathed. I will cry, however, just so you know, I will cry. I feel it already. I mean, we but probably okay. all will, right? Like, I'm not untouched by any of these issues either. There's no human being who isn't. 